Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Bomer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, when she was approached by Bravo about the possibility of her joining Real Housewives of New York as a cast member, she was pretty clear that that was not something she wanted to do, but she also mentioned to them that she had written a book years ago called Momzilla's, which might be the perfect source material to adapt into a television show. Bravo had not yet done a comedy series, but they thought, you know what, let's do it. Welcome creator, star, and writer of Odd Mom Out, Jill Cartman, to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today, Jill Cartman, is a best-selling author and the creator of Bravo's first scripted comedy, Odd Mom Out, in which she played a satirical version of herself navigating the hilarity of raising children on the Upper East Side in the greatest city in the world, New York City. She graduated from Yale, where she did many plays and was in an a cappella group. After graduating and working for magazines and television and films, she began writing novels. And now, I believe she has written 10 Mm -hmm. Uh, And her most recent is a comedic essay collection called Sprinkle Glitter on My Grave. She recently made her Cafe Carlisle debut with her sold-out show Stairway to Cabaret, directed by our beloved Trip Coleman. 
She hosts a radio show, The Jill Cardman Show, on Sirius XM. She's performed with the Upright Citizens Brigade. She appears in a big Hollywood movie called A Bad Mom's Christmas. For I'm two also seconds. for two seconds, but still, that residual check <laughs> reflects the two seconds. That's true. I got one for like fourteen dollars or something once. It was very exciting. One and a half Starbucks. Yeah, is what you could get with exactly. that. She is a humanitarian, which I'm in awe of because she devotes so much of her time to supporting organizations that focus on human rights. And she's the mother of three. She's married. Everyone who I told Jill Cardman was coming on my show was like, oh, my God, I love her. So that, oh, that was is on so a loop. Nice. And I'm really thrilled to welcome you to this podcast. Thank you, Alana. That is the sweetest. What a great welcome. Holy shit. Thank yeah. you. You've done some stuff. Yeah. I mean, I feel it. I don't feel I, I feel like it's been a long road and it's all over the place road with, you know, winding shit. But yeah. I, I definitely feel like this last year has been more calming. I haven't been working as much and just trying to focus on being at home and being healthy and all that crap. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about all that that entails. But I want to sort of go back because what was really incredible is getting to do a deep dive. I love Odd Mom Out. Thank you. It is so, I hate the word brand, but if I had a brand and desire to uh, write something in my brand or be a part of it, you did it. So I was like, I don't have to worry about that because Jill Cardman has just (laughs) taken care of. Yeah, it just, your voice, you're, you're so funny. And it was interesting when I was um, doing this deep dive into your life, because the internet is an incredible place now for research, is understanding that your dad had really loved stand-up comedy in his early days. So Jill's mother and father, Coco and Ari Kopelman, raised their children also in New York City. And there's so much I want to talk about, but their story's incredible. And if you could just talk a little bit about what you know of how they met and and who they were even before they had you and your brother. That would be incredible. Well, it was such a whirlwind before I came along. It was only like a, a year and a, a half. A minute, yeah. They met and married in 12 weeks, which they rose – like when we were growing up, they always said, if you did what we did, we would fucking kill you. Like they were engaged in six weeks. They met at Labor Day weekend on the roof of the Met which I think is a really great New York meeting place. And yes. if you're single, they have mixers, as my parents call them. No one calls them mixers anymore. <laughs> but it'll be like young patrons night in the yeah. sculpture garden. And that's where they met, across the roof of the Met. And he what saw year her. What was that? 1971. Uh-huh. Labor Day of 1971. And um, she was smoking a cigarette, which was a turnoff. He said there's this hot girl with purple suede clogs, except she's smoking. And that's a bummer. But after she put out the cigarette, he was talking to her, and she was actually there with another guy. And he somehow got her number, and it was a real, you know, romance, whirlwind romance. He proposed—she was 20, and he was 33—and he proposed at 21 Club on her 21st birthday, November 14th of the same year. Now, her family, she comes from a French background. French Orthodox. She grew up sitting upstairs. Her mother— her In the synagogue. Yeah, in Paris, her family— was in hiding during the Holocaust. They escaped Paris and they could only afford a visa for one person. So they sent my grandmother at age seven to boarding school in England. And then they took her little brother, my mom's uncle, and kind of hit the road. And they were never captured. They just kept hiding and went further and further and further south until there was nowhere to go. And the Gestapo came into that town. And my great-grandfather was just super chill. And he sent my great-grandmother off, and he just was pretending to take pictures with this Leica camera, and he wound up selling it to this 
Nazi officer who said, this is a very nice camera. And he said, thanks. And just played it so cool. And he's like, well, I, I want you to give it to me. And he was like, ew, no, I'm not giving it to you. And so thinking a Jew would be like, take it, take it. Yeah. But he just kept his cool. And then they wound up taking this other family that was in hiding with them that they had had a secret Seder with. So we still bake the cake every year that my great-grandmother, Colin, we called her, Rochelle, made with this other woman who they all died. I mean, can you believe this? No. So then they moved. They went back to Paris. Uh, my grandmother, Sylvette, came back from boarding school. She didn't hear from her family for six years. They had not didn't know if they were dead or alive. They teased her because she only spoke French and, and Italian, and she had no friends. She was Ms. At, at boarding school. Boarding school from yeah. age 7 to 13. And then she came back to Paris, grew up there, met my grandfather there, and then they moved to America and had three daughters. And my mother went to the Lycée Francais. She was very sheltered. She was at, you know, Sheriff Israel Synagogue sitting upstairs and all that. They shouldn't, like, wear a wig and shit, but it was, like, orthodox. Right. And but um, did others? Like, did her mother? No. Okay. No, I guess you'd call so it more modern, modern orthodox now. Yeah. But it, it was a French—it was a very European community. I yeah. Don't, and then she— my, she went to Mount Holyoke at 16, and she graduated at 18. I mean, she was like a whiz, genius. And so she was working in New York and met my dad and got married at 21. In purple clouds. Super young. Incredible. Yeah. And your father grew up here? He, no, he grew up in Boston. He came here when he was eight or nine and said he looked out the back of the cab window and was like, this is where I need to be. be. Boston bought. is small potatoes. I remember reading that your grandfather went to Harvard, and I was thinking Harvard Law School, is yes. that right? Uh -huh. And that at that time, I don't know how many Jews would have been allowed into Harvard Law School, or was he part of... I think there were some, but very few, and right. there were certainly quotas against them. Um, so that's extraordinary already. So yeah, and he became the youngest judge in the history of Massachusetts at 28. And he actually... His son also became a judge. My dad's twin, David Kopelman, became a judge. And um, but later, you know, okay. twenty eight. I don't think anyone will break that record. No one's going to become a judge at twenty eight. People Incredible. are like dipshits at twenty eight. Yeah. Um. So which they should. Be. I mean, yeah, okay. it was a different time, you yeah. know. So anyway, he was very serious guy, really academic. Never said I love you to my dad. So he grew up kind of always wanting this approval that he wasn't getting from his dad. He did a tremendously like loving magnanimous um, mother, Ruth Kopelman, my nana. And did she you always know encouraged them him. Up? I did. Yeah, yeah, we saw them all the time. And my grandmother actually is responsible for introducing me to my husband. We were introduced on a blind date set up by my grandma's best friend. They played bridge together for 50 years. Not her best friend, but in her bridge group. Five years. Okay. They played bridge for 50 years and fixed us up on a blind date. It's so like Fiddler on the fucking roof. <laughs> Wait, Harry is your Harry, husband? Yeah, I call it shtetl chic. His grandmother and, and my grandmother. grandmother. Yeah, Betty Bloomberg and Ruth Kopelman played bridge together in the like Florida Yenta circuit. And it and worked. fixed us up. In their mink coats in Miami in the winter. Yeah, um, it's crazy. That is unbelievable. So your dad did have a foray or a moment yeah, uh, he in went the stand-up world. Yeah, he went to Columbia School, did stand-up on the weekends. He went to all the Catskills in Atlantic City and did Harrah's and all these stand-up things. And his father made it very clear that he did not approve. So he never got to pursue it. He felt like, okay, it's just something fun that I'm doing. But my dad is hilarious, so funny, always has dirty jokes, always rattling off like any is that his number brand? of accents. Like what's yes. his sort of like dirty jokes and 
dirty jokes and mimic. He can mimic anybody. He's really funny. He can do like the old Yiddish guy or anything. He's great with accents, as is my mother. So, and she speaks four languages. She's uh, like, you cannot tell that she has an accent in anything. It's amazing. Poly, full polyglot. So, um, I feel like they were kind of a match made in heaven in that she's more dry and witty and reserved and he's a ham. She's not a ham like he is. Um, But together, I grew up in a house with them just laughing all the time. I had such a good childhood. I'm so addicted to my parents. I mean, that's the one thing is I'm I can't picture losing them because I'm so obsessed with them. I talk to them every day. So I'm not the most grown-up 44-year-old because I'm right. so attached. And so I imagine your kids are incredibly attached to your parents, oh, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Totally. I felt like when I had my kids that I just kept saying, like, your grandma is the real mom. Like, I just would feel and still feel like as long as my mom's around, like, there's a mom on board. And totally. I'm doing, like, I make lunches in the morning and I get them dressed and I love the shit out of them. But anything real, I'm like, I just have to... Call grandma. We're so lucky. Yeah. We're so lucky. I have so many friends, especially right now with the political shitstorm hellscape, who are not speaking to the parents if they're like right. psycho Trump supporters right. or whatever the fuck mental patient people are like, whatever, voting for that guy, but or supporting those his accolades. But um, I, I just feel like relationships are more strained than ever. I think that's true. And so I feel really lucky I have that because they were kind of a second set of parents to my kids in the early days because we couldn't afford a nanny. We were in a fourth floor walk up and all that. I got a nanny when my third was born. Um, Well, you earned it. If you have a third. Yeah. But I really couldn't have done it without my parents, without being like divorced in a mental asylum, whatever. No, I get it. And, And in seeing like all these photographs of your parents, they're so beautiful. They're so elegant. You're so and, cute. Yeah. Well, I think if they're getting their picture taken, they're probably dressed up at a black tie thing. But they know so how. That's not, they know how to do I'm it. Just a normal Tuesday or anything. Right. And so you grew up with this incredibly loving, funny, elegant, engaged in philanthropy in the world of New York and, and New York as your, you know, I've had a lot of guests like Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon, a lot of these girls who grew up in New York City and this was their playground. Yeah. And their doorman was their babysitter and sort of just these latchkey kids, which is a very different version of it than a suburban latchkey here's kid. The, here's the one thing that is different, though, is that the, there are people who grow up in the Upper East Side and they don't leave their area. It's like they're pigeonholed in this little p- cosseted Petri dish. Yeah. Whereas my parents and what Harry and I do is we use New York as like a menage a trois in our marriage. We use New York as a third parent. So we're in all five boroughs. I mean, we're not like often in Staten Island, but we're going tomorrow to Canvas for Matt Rose. Great. Um, we go to, you know, an Indian restaurant where you sit on the floor in Queens or we go to a Broadway show or we go to an art gallery. Like we really filch all of the kaleidoscopic things that New York has to offer. And then it's so pathetic. I meet people. I said to this woman once, um, yeah, I have to go downtown later. And she goes, oh, you mean like Saks? No. Yes. Like they get fucking nosebleeds if they go (laughs) below 23rd Street. And I just think like that's so sad. There's a whole city there. There are Tons of women I know are like, I hear Brooklyn is really up and coming and they don't they've never been to Brooklyn and they live on Park Avenue. It's like they're like, we've got tell us where to go. Where do we go? I'm like, you wouldn't even you're it's just they just don't think of New York as a full city like they just stay in their 20 block radius. So you broke out of that mold or were never in that mold because of who your parents were. Yeah. And that's really fortunate that they had this worldly view and a desire to be everywhere and not in a, a weird ghetto. Right. And that's an incredible thing. When did you realize you are 
so funny. You're so funny. Your essays are funny. Your show is funny. Your everything you do is so smart and also so funny. When did you understand that that was a skill set that you had that not everybody has? Um, first of all, thank you. You're I feel welcome. so unfunny lately because I have so much rage about that's fair the political shit show. That's fair. Um, I guess I would say in boarding school because. Immediately, it was more not that I was like, humor. It was more just observation because I was total Wednesday Adams in Barbie Town and everyone was blonde, tits on sticks, and when Patagonia for. Was this high school or 14? Before? Yeah, mm. in high school. And so I left New York. I felt like I was 12 going on 21. I was sneaking out to the scene and limelight, and I was in all these places I shouldn't be. I was not like blowing anyone or doing coke. I just was dancing. But I felt like. I wasn't getting to be a teenager. I grew up watching these John Hughes movies with Molly Ringwald, and I wanted to be a, quote, normal American, whatever the fuck that means. It means being, like, shot at your school. But I was so— Well, it's changed. It's changed, but I wanted that, quote, wholesome— you know, teen life. And I didn't really have it here because you do kind of pogo stick over your teens and you're 21. So when I went to boarding school, I found myself at a football game and all the stuff you just don't have as a city kid. But— so what? Like you have other stuff. Sure. So, but it was, you know, I'm glad I went. I, I definitely was ready to leave and wanted to move on and go to college. People were sobbing at graduation. You hear the bagpipes and you hear these muffled sobs. And I was like, what's wrong with you people? We're free. Um, we're free. What the hell? But there were all these um, parents who went there who'd come back and be like, these are the best years of your life. And I thought, if that's true, I'm just going to like ask Siri how to rope a noose because that's really depressing. But they didn't have smartphones then, but in no, theory. but you would have. I, w- I just feel like who says high school is the best years of your life except total mediocre failures? Like that's so pathetic. So your mom had gone to boarding school. Was this? No, she was oh, she at went the to Lycee. Holy, the Lycee. Yeah. So where did this, was that sort of trending? Were your friends, for, you went to Spence, right? Yeah, a lot of people were applying to boarding school. My dad went to boarding school and he just was like, you know what, it's great. I think it's a good idea. First, they sort of turned their nose up at it. And then I sent the applications in without them knowing. Okay. And then I said, here's, I called all the schools and made all the arrangements. And once they toured with me, Did you use they a thought it was voice? cool. Hello. This is, no, this they is actually cool. thought it was cool that I, the kid was calling. She wants to go. Um, then then we toured them and my dad said, wow, this, these are really great schools and Uh, These kids are kind of hot shits. Like he always said, like he was impressed by the student body and they appeared to be that more like wholesome all-American thing. Whereas in the city, you definitely see kids who are a little bit fucked up. But what he doesn't know is that in the suburbs in some basement, they're all like doing crazy things too. Like making crystal meth. Like Yeah, my daughter went to camp and she was, you know, these girls are like sucking dick at 13 in Scarsdale, some of them, you know. They're much faster in the burbs because there's nothing to do. Right. Now that you have kids, could you imagine, I mean, when my kids go to sleepaway camp, I miss them so much. It's a great second honeymoon for, for Dominic and oh, I. Oh, yeah. There's, it's there's marriage a freedom with that. Definitely. Total. But I can't really, can you imagine sending her to boarding school? Yeah, she's school? there. She's in board, same boarding school. <laughs> so I guess you could. Yeah, she's coming, she yes. comes home on the weekends. It's fine. So she's there Monday to Friday. She's coming home tonight for two days. Is this her first year or second yeah, year? Yeah, first year. She so how it. is that? And how is that for you? You know what? It's great because my it's my little two, my my small fries. They're not that small, but they're twelve and eleven. It's like their turn, and they get yeah. so much more attention. And we're just having so much fun, and we miss her. But I Facetime her every day. When I went, it was a black hole. Right. There's so, like a payphone on in some yeah, hallway with thirty girls. Right. Now I she Facetimes me 
every day and we chat and whatever. And I feel like I actually talk to her more now because she needs advice about things where, I mean, she always asks for advice. We're, we're very tight. I don't understand. Everybody says like, oh, teenage girl nightmare. No, but I don't, She's I don't my have best that friend problem. in a weird way. Yeah, me I too. Know. It's very... But I don't say that to her. I'm like, I'm not your best friend. I'm your right. mom. No, no, no. But in my heart, <laughs> yeah. I feel like Georgia is 15 and she gives me the best advice. Yeah. And I love her company. Me too. They're and like your friend now. Yeah. It's really sweet. Both of them. So boarding school, you kind of developed uh, a persona. To answer your question, yes. I made all kinds of observations about my surroundings and the homogeneity and some of the like the shticks about all the reversible names. Everybody had a reversible name except me because it was like Wellington Rutherford. It could be Rutherford Wellington and Roman numeral four. And everyone was this really, you know, Mayflower Brahmin type. And I just was the exotic other as the Jewess. And I felt like I sprouted payas the second I walked on that campus. (laughs) But I looked around me and that sort of, I guess now in retrospect, can see with the 2020 hindsight, that was the beginning of Odd Mom Out was, you know, odd 14 year old out because I'm sitting there like this goth chick with a my black leather jacket that I got for my bat mitzvah from Trash and Vaudeville that Jimmy Webb sold me in the 80s. And there I was on this campus where everybody like they cough and a Tiva flies out and they're wearing, you know, jewel tone Patagonias and white baseball hats. So it was just another planet, really. But that's such an incredible thing to both be in something. You know, I mean, there's there's no denying your your family history. Your dad ended up being I forget what it's called because I'm an actor, not the CFO of Chanel. What was his? COO. COO. President and COO. Yes, yes. And <laughs> I don't uh, know those corporate things either. He's <laughs> like, he's very high up and very <laughs> important um, and can bring us products home. Uh, I assume he brought product home. Did you get to have yes. kind of lots of lovely well, Chanel? I got, I got the beauty stuff, but they never let me get a Chanel bag. And I would beg. And I, when I turned 16, I had friends who had Chanel bags. And they said... Well, their parents are terrible parents because they will have nothing to look forward to. Right. And that's really pathetic that they're getting a Chanel bag at 16 and they're spoiled brats. So yeah. you're not getting one. So I saw all my friends getting them. It was weird. But that wasn't their style. And I appreciated it when I got one at, you know, 30 or something. I love <laughs> your parents so much. They're so cool. They're so extraordinary because it is very – I mean, I was thinking that about you. Like, how do you – live in the middle of something. I mean, your ability to be both in it and observe it at the same time is a really incredible thing to kind of understand how to value what you value, laugh at what you laugh at, and to travel in it and outside of it at the same time is no small thing. That was all my parents because they would come home from parties and things and comment about people who are fleshy or just conspicuous consumption or people, you know, so I, I, their values, it's all just osmosis living in the apartment with them. Right. But then when I went out on my own, I had the same power of observation and, you know, understanding that people say things without thinking, you know, you almost want to tape record them. But, um, I remember, especially as a kid, I was, I was an intern at Mademoiselle and Harper's Bazaar. And my dad said with both internships, I just want to make it clear. You didn't get this because you're so great. You got it because I made a phone call. So you're going to be the first person there at eight in the morning and you're going to be the last one to leave. And I said, well, dad, some people aren't even there at eight. And he's like, you just sit there and you be there when they all walk in and you ask if you think you can fetch them a coffee or re-alphabetize the Rolodex. Right. And that was the thing. But they also <laughs> had an incredible aesthetic. 
And you, I feel like you and Kate Blanchett, like the two of you. Ooh, when how I could look, you even say me in that heart? She's like another stratosphere. I don't know. I worship her. I do too. But then doing a deep dive into your fashion sense, like you have impeccable taste and it's Thank uniquely you. yours, but it's beautiful. And somehow you've intuited and absorbed this really beautiful, unique aesthetic and grew up with an appreciation for art and beauty. And your parents were really involved in philanthropy and supporting the arts in New York. And so there, there's an awareness of that. There is. But I have a my mother is a truly stylish person. She just puts together anything and it's beautiful. And she dresses like a normal human being. I My mom teases me and calls me the Sicilian widow because I only wear black. I don't look good in color. I'm so pale. Um, do you like clothes? Do you like I fashion? I love clothes, but I really only like black clothes. So I'll be leafing through a thing and they'll say, oh, do you like this? You know, emerald green is really in right now. And I just said, no. I mean, look at me. I would look, I call it cadaver chic. I look exhumed from a grave. If you don't know my face, um, I'm very, very pale. So I don't look good in color. I mean, occasionally I'll wear like burgundy is stepping out. Right. But um, I just really wear crazy. black every day. So I don't, I feel like truly stylish people take way more risks than I do. Well, that being said, I really love your style. Oh, thanks. And um, <laughs> I want to say that, you know, people may not be aware because Odd Mom Out became a very popular show very quickly. And so many eyeballs who, you know, people were watching that network because of all the Real Housewives and all this other stuff. It was a very new thing for that network to, uh, to take on a show that had... Um, a world that Real Housewives of New York covered, but doing it from a very different perspective. I knew you wrote a book called Momzilla, mm -hmm. and I know that in some ways that might have planted the seeds for Bravo to adapt that into a, exactly. a scripted series because it makes sense. Um, but I think what's astonishing is that you acted in Yale, as I said in your bio, and obviously you were an actress and loved doing it. But the idea that really, in earnest, it wasn't until you were almost 40 years old that you were on television and that you got to do it completely on your terms is the most inspirational thing. And oh, my yay. listeners are going to flip out just knowing there <laughs> no, are... I'm like, I became an actress at 39. Yes, and or, or revisited... Your prime. <laughs> yes, like revisiting this passion in this really... Um, uh, on your own terms and in this incredible way. And I think people often feel like, oh, that's not going to happen for me and don't understand how things you know, sort of there's this map and you can go off and on it in all these ways. But that was the most not graceful metaphor. But I do really think it is an extraordinary story. So when you got out of school and you you were at Yale and you were an undergrad doing plays, who were people that you went to school with who ended up doing it? Okay, you're going to die. Bobby Lopez, who wrote Frozen, who's a billionaire. Heard of it. Um, he was, I was in his first musical. Can you believe that? With Trip Coleman. So, and I ran it to him. I was like, Bobby Lopez, hi. It's almost ridiculous because I'm like, I'm a zero because he wrote Frozen. Um, and he's the youngest ever EGOT. Incredible. It's so funny. Yeah. There were a lot of performers who I knew were going to go be actresses. And they always said from day one, I'm going to be an actress. I'm moving to New York. I'm moving to L.A. And I never said that to anybody because I'm a, I'm a workaholic and I always need to be working. And I knew I didn't have – part of it was balls, but part of it was also just – the the strength to wait between auditions and all that because I needed a job. And partly it was financial, even though I lived with my parents, but partly it was because I am a jackrabbit and need to be working. So I 
went right to magazines because that was all my experience in the summer. But when you were at Yale, were you getting good parts? Yeah, I had great parts. And then when I left, I th- when I bowed in my last show, which actually wasn't a good part. Well, I was I was um, the yellow brick road in The Wiz. So weirdly, I sang Ezon down the road. It was weird. They just try to make it more equitable. But I bowed and I said to myself, like, that's my last time ever on a stage. That's so sad. And then it was for 18 years until until I did Williamstown. So it was crazy. And I I got on that stage in, in Massachusetts and said, this is my first time on a stage in 18 that's years. What, because you did the cabaret there before it came to New York. Yes. That's that's what you're referencing. Yes, exactly. So when you were at Yale, did you also focus on writing? Did you write stuff for yourself to perform? No, I didn't take one English class. Not a one. Not one. I took French, Spanish, and Italian all the way through. I loved languages, and I find them easy. So... I was I graduated in three years. I skipped my junior year because I saved my parents like forty five thousand. So you just like took tons of courses and lots of credits well, and they piled up. Yeah, or... you you have to take thirty six credits. So I started taking six the first semester, and most people take four or five. So you take nine a year, and I took twelve a year. I was just gonna bag whichever one was dumb and boring, but right. they were all cool. And so I just stayed afloat with that. And then my dean said. You can graduate in three years. You're taking all these classes. But, you know, in boarding school, you have school on Saturdays. So I felt like I had too much free time. Right. Even with the play. This and was breezy. It was breezy compared to high school. High school f- sucks. It fucking sucks. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I just felt like I was never going to pursue acting. So then my dean called me and said, "These, you know, there's a think tank here who wants to speak to you. And I went in and I was like, hi, like, why am I here? And they said, you're the seventh person in the history of the university to take three languages were they wanted to recruit me for the CIA. Oh my god. I was like, well then I have to like blow fat people in the desert. You're like, no. For secrets. Is that I read I, Daniel Silva books. That, You're a honeypot and you have to bone terrorists. I'm good. Um I love my country but not that much. So anyway, I just I don't know. I just it didn't even occur to me that I to go be an actress because I did think you have to be like Blonde and blue-eyed and right. probably blow people and casting couch and all that. But I just felt like no one looks like me in movies. And were you doing any um, comedy stuff? Like No. None of that? No, no improv? No Upright Citizens Brigade at the time? No, I did Upright Citizens Brigade at 42. Oh, my God. So you get out of school and you start writing and you have this unbelievably wonderful singular writer's voice. Well, that I had really at 20. I had that second I got to magazines and I you knew really how to do hated it. my job. I was at Interview Magazine. Okay. Started by Annie Warhol. and Who the, had been your neighbor, right? He was my childhood Just, neighbor. By the way. Um, but he didn't know me. I, first of all, he was dead when I got the job, like right. the, 10 years later. I was, you know, it's a really small scale magazine. So if I had been at Connie Nast, I'd be walking the dog of Cameron Diaz's second second assistant right. or something. But at interview, they let me write at 21, 20. And were you so, pitching stories to them or yeah. were they assigning you? Like, what no, was the I was first pitching. Thing? Well, it's funny because Ingrid Sishi, the late editor in chief, she would always ask if they were attractive and stuff. And I was pitching people and they weren't. I was, finally, I came in. I'm like, there's this girl who's really pretty named Fiona Apple. And she was but, like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, I wrote, I interviewed Gwen Stefani when she was 26. You know, it's weird now looking back. I interviewed Mike Myers. And they would just send this kid. I mean, I was an idiot with a tape recorder. I'd never interviewed anyone. I didn't go to journalism school. You know, it was kind of guerrilla-style renegade. I got, to, but then I transcribed it myself, and I was doing assistant duties for everybody else. But, um, you know, I wasn't that happy there, but I definitely look back and realize I was so lucky to be there and write all these articles. And I signed a contract saying... I, I wouldn't write for anyone in America, 
but I could I sent all my clips. I would Xerox them and send them to editors in London. So I became this New York stringer for a lot of magazines and interviewed, you know, actors and actresses for magazines abroad, like British Vogue, British GQ, whatever. So it was cool. I had like a good little freelancer career and outside all personality of pieces at the time, yeah. like covering. Well, no, some of them were just like my own rants about things, and they they let me do kind of a every other month column. What's that called? Bi-monthly? Yeah. Or is that every two I weeks? Don't do, I don't know anyway. what it's called when you work in a company um, or math. I can't math. do either. Um, but yeah, I did columns and they let me, they gave me a tremendous amount of freedom. And when you first started, because so often in any field like there, you, you sort of mimic people you admire at first, styles or actors or singers. That's how you find your own. Were there writers when, when you were starting that you wanted to emulate or be like or worship? I worshipped um, Woody Allen, and he was, to me, my dream writer. Not just all his movies, but all of his New Yorker essays, all of his essays, um, Without Feathers and all those books. I loved um, Fran Lebowitz, Cynthia Heimel. Um, you know, I just would read and giggle out loud. And right. I thought, if I can write something that makes people laugh— that's a gift because I she Cynthia Heimel made me laugh my junior year of high school where I was like in my depressing dorm room with paint chipping off it looked like orange is the new black and she made me cackle. So that was the the best inspiration. The other inspiration was the shitty writing out there because I thought why are they allowed to do this? I could do this. Yeah. So the, it was just as much the crap writers as the good writers. And when you sort of forayed into film and television, I would assume everything you wrote pretty quickly really was great content to be adapted into these other media. I mean, television, obviously Odd Mom Out eventually became that. Were things being bought or or optioned to be made into films or TV shows once you sort of... It was the most frustrating, torturous thing. All my books were optioned and none were made. So at the first couple times that my agent would be like, guess what? This movie studio is buying your book. You, actually you get the thought, champagne. Right. You you know, I was a dumb kid. Right. I didn't know. I was 28 or 9. And I said, you guys, my book's going to be a movie. Like soon yeah. to be a major motion picture. Crickets. Nothing. Right. They buy it. They put it in a vault. I had a two movie deal at Paramount. Nothing. So I was, I felt like a fraud or something because mm. it would be, there it was in Variety. But then nothing happened. So it started to get embarrassing as a writer because people are like, what's happening with your movie? And I, I was like, I don't know. You tell you know? me. Yeah, it was a bummer. So, But I wrote for MTV, and those were very much – that was before I was in the union or anything because it was non-union. But what I were wrote, you writing for them? I worked in MTV News Docs, which um, – which was like, I did a show called Who Is, which was sort of like any biography. It was a really big deal at the time. So we did kind of our half hour version for like a shorter attention span on a band. And I would, you know, call the stuff and write it. But then we did a show called Who So Five Minutes Ago. That was a trend report about things that are so five minutes ago that are over. Like, remember this thing? And that was really where I felt like I was in this fun mile a minute factory shitting out copy and then it would be on tv the Amazing. next day and i saw my name right and that's on the tv screen it and happened. i it was very exciting for me and i got paid peanuts and then the weirdest thing happened i got knocked up i was already married so it wasn't okay. really knocked up but Thank i got you, pregnant Grandma. and i showed up i was 28 i showed up at the office and they never called me again they that's thought disgusting. i lost my edge what yeah, they were like, what the hell? And they were like those 36-year-old Williamsburg hipsters with the messenger bag, rejuvenile, sleeved in tattoos. And I was 28. I was younger than them. But because I had a bun in the oven and I was a big fat person, they just thought, 
oh, she's not cool. She's, she's not lost her us. edge. And they never called me again because I was a freelancer. So they'd hire me project to project like for three months or six months. Never. Crickets. Were you having kids? <laughs> like, weird? No, it's not. It's it's weird. It's it's actually really upsetting and bums me out because I think that, frankly, that's still happening all over the place in different different versions of that. Mm-hmm. And people still feel like they have to make a choice or try to hide it. Or Did you feel like you were having kids at the same time that your friends and peers were having? Or did that no. feel early to you? Oh, it was, so, it was totally early. My friends were dancing on tables at Bungalow 8 and fucking car mechanics when their car broke down. And I was... I had three kids. You were throwing I had up. three kids in four years. And was the first one a planned pregnancy? It wasn't not planned. We were just like doing that Irish pull and pray method. Yeah. Like if you do that, you're in it. It's like, what do you call people who use the withdrawal method? Parents. <laughs> but we were like, okay, we're married. So. But whatever. you got married young too. Yeah, I got married at 27. Right. Was that a whirlwind romance? You know, it it wasn't for me because my parents had gotten married in 12 right. weeks. You so after a year, after yeah. a year, I was like, dude, shit or get off the pot. Like, I didn't say that. You to wanted him, to be married. I wanted to be married. I knew it was him. You know, I was engaged twice before Harry, by the way. I was oh. like runaway bride. No, okay. not at the altar, but I was engaged twice. And so when I met Harry, I went, we stayed out really late. We went to Marie's Crisis. We had the best date. Did you sing? I sang my little fucking lungs out and he didn't know any words, but he was happy um, until mind. some guy grabbed his ass and said, why are you here with your mother about me? What? Yeah. What? I was like, oh, fuck you. Okay. Um, so then we were walking around. He put me in a cab and I came home to my old shitty apartment and the phone was ringing and he's like, hi, I just want to make sure you got home. Okay. Cute. Right. So there were no cell phones back then. Right. Back in my day, yeah. I have a walker here with tennis balls on it. Um, there really were no cell phones. Though. Yeah. So uh, the next morning I went to my sex in the city brunch with Vanessa, who yes, you met. I just met. The and lovely Vanessa. she, I said, I met my husband last night. It was like out of that sex in the city brunch of like, guys, I have an announcement. He didn't know that so fast about me, but Within six months, we were living together. So we had the, it wasn't, it was, it was normal. I wouldn't say it was whirlwind. It was normal. And he has a media company? Yeah, he's in tech. I call him Geek Chic. Do you understand what he does? Not at all. Are you interested? No. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Not at all. Well, your lives got, um, public in a way, because even though you weren't doing Real Housewives of the Upper East Side, your show really, Odd Mom Out, really, um, brought so much of you to it, uh, even though the character was named Jill Weber mm-hmm. instead of Jill Cardman. Was there any doubt in your mind about whether to keep your last name or take Harry's last name? And how did you make that decision? Or did you just like his name better? That's a good question. There was no doubt in my mind because my mom took my dad's name. And I just felt like growing up in the 80s, the mom, this is totally wrong and stupid. I admit this. But for some reason, I had this thing in my head, which is wrong, that the couples where the mom had the maiden name in my class at Spence, like they weren't as much of a unit or something because it was very new. Yeah. And so I kind of always thought like, of course, I'll take their name. Now, if I married, you know, Harry Shitsky, probably not. But Cargman was the same letter K and a man. So you're swapping an ARG for an opal. Exactly. So I mean, you know, yeah, I didn't even really think about it. Okay. I cried the first day, the first night. Um, I wrote my dad a letter thanking him for my wedding and I started crying. And I was like, why does a woman have to change her name? This mm-hmm. is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, maybe I do want to keep my name. But it was too late because I had already like filled out paperwork and told Harry I was taking it and all that. Is he funny? No, but he's such a good audience. 
That's all we need. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. All right. He's so, cute. He can be funny sometimes. He seems really Even cute. a broken clock is right twice a day. There no, I'm kidding. Go. No, he's the sweetest guy in the world. I'm so fucking lucky. Yeah. You are. He seems really nice. He's the nicest, but not nice, boring. He's, right. He can laugh at the mean stuff, too. He's not somebody that if you say something mean, they're going to be like, oh, come on. No, he Fuck gets those it. People. He's totally yeah. fine. I don't like too nice. So... Momzilla, this obviously we're we're jumping around because your life is so colorful and amazing and accomplished and and also what I really love is it seems not to use the Sex and the City reference that you do have this um, incredible loyal posse of women. I do. That you, that my you five have, best friends yeah. are my. They're my life. Like I, they, I don't. This is so mean because people. A lot of people move to New York and they they're new here right so their their school becomes their community mm-hmm. or whatever but i'm sometimes wary about people who always have new friends or like this mom i asked another mom in our class to be the godmother of her new baby i'm like you just met two years ago like right. what the fuck that's weird and but then i you know i feel guilty saying that because they you know they're new here maybe but i have i just my bridesmaids are my best friend i not to say i didn't weed the friendship garden in my 20s you know you have some friendships that are just inertia that you keep around and then at some point you have to say you know what i don't feel good when i'm with this person or they're toxic in some way i don't i didn't have many of those but my core five are still my best friends and are they like college spence taft one spence two taft two college and they all love each other too yeah now they do because they they all met like when we were in our 20s in new york and two are now in boston and three are here you know i want to get to odd mom out in in a deep way uh but i also know now like you've you're adapting the monsters for new. Oh no, they passed. NBC passed. Did you hear that, folks? NBC passed, so it is Fuck back the out. If you want to do it someplace <laughs> else, you can buy it. Do you feel like you were always super confident, or are you not super confident but really good at seeming like you are? No, I feel like I'm confident because I really know who I am, and I think because I was like when I was a kid, I felt. I wasn't confident because I just felt like, oh, I'm so zitty. Like, literally, Ray Charles could read my forehead. I had cystic acne. And then my doctor, I remember my doctor being like, there's this brand new thing called Accutane. But anyway, yeah. then I was like, oh. But was that your, like, middle school or high school life? Like, feeling like the yeah. girl covered with zits? Or... No, no, I wasn't. I don't know. I weirdly got it. I guess you just have to hone your personality if, you don't, if you're not a looker. Yeah. So I've honed my personality. And also, you know, I had parents who were like, it doesn't really matter. And if I was at a Chanel show and they're all the models and I'm standing there looking at these, like, Rexy skeletons looking beautiful, my dad would say, don't worry. People like a little meat on the bones or something. He would try mm-hmm. to make me not want to go and jump out a window from seeing models my whole childhood. Sure. So I didn't really obsess about things the way that some people do. But um, I don't know. I it's I do it's not it's I guess I feel confident. Just I'm good at just being me. But it's not. I know you said like my life's colorful and everything, and I do love my life. But my life's pretty boring. Like at home, we I, we like to stay in a lot right now. And I had a phase where I felt like. When you were saying, you know, with camp, how it was marriage defibrillators for me, where I felt like I'm losing myself in mm-hmm. motherhood and I had shot out three kids in four years. And I, yeah. I was desperate to get back to that balsamic reduction of myself because I was very diluted because I was just in giving a lot to zone a lot defense. of people. Yeah, totally. Um, so that's when I felt not confident, not so much not confident. And I don't know, I just felt like I was slipping away and I, w- I was just 
so-and-so's mom. I wasn't Mm me. Um, And then as they got older and I got out of that and I felt like I reinvested in my marriage and as, you know, knew that it was fine to go away and ditch them and with be, my parents. And be creative also, yeah. right? So Well, that was a big part of that's it. That's huge. So how did you get to, because a lot of people write things and they get bought and do get made, but they're not in them. That's just not part of the bargain. So how did, not only did Momzilla become a series called Odd Mom Out that is loosely based on your life with <laughs> tremendous humor and thrown in for good measure, um, how did you get to play the lead in it? It's so funny. It never was even an issue. They wanted me to do a reality and have me on camera. And I said, I, I'm not, I'm a writer. They I don't wanted want... to do, not a Real Housewives character. They well, didn't we, want to add was... you to Real Housewives. They wanted you to do your own thing. There was a discussion, like just a general, quote unquote, mm-hmm. meeting about that. Um, I So here's the, here's the interesting thing that people have to understand. My trajectory, I took a huge step backwards because I had all these things option. I thought one of them's going to go and this is so great and I'll be a screenwriter in the guild. Um, and then I just was like, I have no money. Like I, I was I was panicking. Harry started his own company and I was like, I have to get a job. I have to go back to work. So did I go to something glamorous that could move the ball forward? No, I was writing tampon commercials. I went to Ogilvy. I was brought in as a freelance writer, like the way I did at MTV. Right. And I was probably there three days a week. And I was doing copy. I was doing this panty liner. And it was a commercial with like, it never got made. But it was people, of course. But I got a salary. (laughs) Yeah. And it was people laughing about things. And then, you know, a little pee comes out if you have kids. So my pad, it said like, I wrote, you're in the clear. Urine, get it? Got it, it. got it. So anyway, I was pitching the stuff and the client, the producer said, the client really liked you. They thought you were funny in the meeting when I was pitching it. And I think they brought me in like in Mad Men where they bring in the Jew for the Jewish client. The guys were all, it was all guys. So I think it would behoove them to have me come in. But they were awesome. And afterwards, one of them said, have you ever considered being on television? You, You were good in there. And I said, okay, yeah, sure. I'll just go be on television then. He's like, no, I'm serious. And I said, okay, like how? And I'm sitting in this job that was kind of treading water just for the money. Right. And it was those producers who had the idea to go in and meet with Bravo to pitch them this other show that we wanted to do, which was a morning show called Wake the Fuck Up for like a streaming or cable, whatever. And um, Bravo passed on it but said, we want to meet with her. And this casting director had actually emailed me randomly saying, we're, we hired three casting directors, different casting directors, to come up with lists for Real Housewives, and your name was on all three lists. Interesting. Can you come to lunch at Le Cirque, the old Le Cirque? Mm-hmm. And I said, no thanks. Like, I'll never have a camera at my butthole. That's never happening. And they're like, it's just a meeting. You know, we'll have a nice meal. I'm like, thanks. I can, like, buy my own chicken breast. Like, yeah, we're good. I'm I not this. like, feed me. Yeah. So, um, did you know any of the housewives? Why do you no. think... But no, just I just think I'm a New Yorker, yeah. and I wrote these books about that world. Yeah. So um, I wound up doing the meeting with Andy Cohen and Lara Spots, and he's like, okay, well, let's just say we did, you know, there was another reality show we developed, not Housewives, but something else that's more comedic, because I said, I don't like drama and people yelling at each other and whatever. And I said, look, NBC, your parent company, owns my book, Momzilla's Can't She Just, like, reach over and take it? And he oh, said, that's not how this works. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it should be. I said, I don't see why. And they were just branching into scripted. So it was kind of exciting because it was the wild, wild west. And I essentially pitched them for a year trying to do this. And he introduced me to Lara Spots, his head of development, who became my showrunner. And we just really clicked. Like she got the show. She knew what the show was. And the more that I came in doing shticks about 
dif- what different scenes could be, she got it. So they finally said, we will have you make a pilot. It okay. wasn't even a real pilot. It was called a sizzle. So instead of 30 minutes, it was 15. So you did a couple of scenes. Did you do random scenes or like the first three scenes of the show? It wasn't. It was more like a, you know condensed Reader's Digest of what the pilot was that eventually aired. It was the Soul Cycle scene. It was me on the street with these moms with $1,000 strollers running me over practically and all with the nannies walking behind them and Brooke, the Brooke character, being nine months pregnant but having no stomach and saying, I'm so fat. I'm like, I'm, you know, Homer Simpson. And then Soul Cycle. Um, and there were like a few scenes, but it was more condensed and then it came same thing where I'm home with my kids, just like this is, you know, we can be kooky and be ourselves here. But it was that my my the two brothers that we were married to, one had sold his company for Which ended all this up money. being true yes. in the series. In the it. series. Yeah, all of that stayed. It's, it was just kind of more of a shrunken version. So you got to do three seasons, mm-hmm. and were you hoping there would be more? Or yes, were you ready? I'm devastated when we what were canceled. Happened? I was so sad. Um, I think that they decided they're not doing comedy anymore, just scripted drama. They said that their audience craves drama because there's like cat fights on Real Housewives, and they made dra- other dramas, and I, they said their audience craves drama. That was the phrase we mm. heard. And so comedy, they don't really think it's like a destination for comedy, so... It's not anymore. The cool thing about being the one and only is that we didn't have a sort of a head of comedy that was riding us. We had so much freedom. So I felt like when no one was looking, I got to make the show for three years. That's incredible. Like I feel like I stole like getting to make a show. It was so silly and, and crazy. And now you know everything about making a show. Yeah, I learned a lot. Right? It was I mean, a crash course. You hit course. the ground running and now you've made a TV show and you started it and wrote it and produced it. And you did it, and it lives forever, and it's fantastic. And what it's I such... never want to do is direct. Is that Am true? Am I the only person who's ever said that? Well, Directing is torture. I can't believe people want to direct. What is it about when you say that? What What are you picturing that's like, that's the part I do not oh like? Oh, my God. It just like looking at storyboards and the lighting and the cameras and, and also having to make an actor feel like coddled enough that they're not being insulted but try to coax out a different part like everything about directing I think sucks and would you be in the room when they were casting oh yeah I mean I it's funny event at the beginning of season one I thought this is like a chorus line and I'm excited and this is going to be fun and after two hours I said I hate this I, I had so much anxiety watching people right. I don't I'm not a power tripper so I didn't like it some people like get off on it or yeah. something and I don't I thought it was really traumatic and I said, I just want to watch the tapes now. So I watched the rest on my computer. That's great. And yeah. then you just know because it's like you just want to tell everyone, like, I don't know if you're going to get it or not, but you were amazing. And I mean, you're a it very given person. And you, I, I am giving. Yes. And I felt really bad. I've had like diarrhea for them. Well, I'm glad that you know that about yourself. Yeah. It's important to know what you want to do. I will never sit in an audition again. And you will ne- and you may end up directing or you may not end no, up directing. No, no, But it's okay. Never. You've heard it here, folks. I want to just, <laughs> um, I want to, I want to just move uh, very quickly um, to the fact that you ended up doing what many women are scared to do, but really need to do for the sake of their own life and the quality of life for the people around them, which is to do the BRCA test. Yes. And you found out that you, in fact, were predisposed. Yeah. So I actually first failed my mammogram. They said, you have two lumps in your left boob. And I was really scared. And they were doing a biopsy and said, these are like pre-cancer mm-hmm. and they're not good. And we have to they basically said, like, this is really bad. Like, these are going to turn. So you had that so moment. So I wait. I had that moment. And then I got – I had the genetic test already scheduled. Okay. And then they said, 
you have a gene called CHK2, which is um, a breast cancer gene also. And it just was like a no-brainer. I mean, so many people said to me, well, this must have been such a hard decision to get a double mastectomy. And I said, nope, not at all. I didn't even think about it. It was I went sort of in a daze. We met with surgeons. At Cornell, Alexander Swistel was like, I can save your nips. Mm -hmm. So we went with him. And, you know, now I have, like, the boobs of an 18-year-old. Was it a great year? No, it was horrible. Like, I had the drains. I had all this drama in there in my life at the time. Um, and I just, you know, but I, I never looked back. I never regretted it or anything. And my, my gyno said all her patients who have had the gene have elected to do this. And especially with lumps, you kind of... My my the oncologist because I had had melanoma before it so okay. Kettering, and I have a foot long scar on my leg and I they took the lymph nodes out of my vag so I have another scar on there on like the Mons Veneris region. <laughs> Let's get scientific. And um, you know a lot now. I do. And but my surgeon said it's frankly it's not when, it's not if it's when. So I felt like my boob was a time bomb. So why wait? Was there breast cancer or yeah. cancer in all your over. family? All over. Okay. And I mean both sides everywhere. Right. Grandmother was dead at 46. My aunt had stage three. She died at 49. My dad's twin brother's daughter had it. It's like all over both right. sides. So it was so clear that you needed to take this test and it was so clear that you yeah. were going to do it. And I'm 44. So that's my grandmother was dead at 46. Like, I don't want to go anywhere. Like, this was a no brainer. Yeah. So it was about a year, you would say, where like beginning to end of going through everything? No, it was no, because I, I did my May was my first surgery and August was my second surgery to get my Stormy Daniels. No, I didn't go bigger. I just I just wanted like to repair it's times it. like this. I'm so sorry. This is an audio experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys, I have C's, all right? I have smaller cams. She looks very her. pretty. But but so but then in terms of healing and in feeling like yourself again. I'm still not a hundred I feel fine. Like mm -hmm. they I feel fine. It's weird looking in the mirror and seeing like boing. Yeah. Um but I feel a little bit like emotionally sort of vulnerable and I guess that has to do with and I'm not agoraphobic or anything but like really crowded rock concerts or things that I used to never care about being smashed against people I'm a little more I feel a little more protective right now and also excuse me I lost a lot of blood so when they did my hemoglobin check they said it was supposed to be 100 to 290 and mine was six so I had to get transfusion and I've been doing this iron drips and all this crap so I definitely feel like tired. I just thought, oh, all moms are tired. I'm right. just a busy New York person. Right. But no, there's an added. Yeah. So I feel like I kind of chalked up this year. My ambition has always come in droves, like ebb and flow. And I this is just not a very ambitious moment in my life. I'm just trying to focus on being home and being relaxed and not stressed about this and doing my infusions. And, you know, I feel so lucky because I go to this Eastside Oncology to get my cancer, my um, my iron drips and everyone else has is doing chemo. Right. And I'm sitting there like, okay, you have no problems. Right. These people are vomiting and bald and you have no problems. Like anything that's stressing you out just doesn't matter. So going through this, it didn't make me really feel weak. It made me feel strong too. But, you know, it, it, it oscillates. Right. But you're such a... Um just having you on the show and just letting people hear like that test works. That it's test really works. important to listen to. And it. it's really and important to get ma mammograms. Yeah. Because that's what found it. And by the way, the year before to the date, September, same year before, totally clean. Mm -hmm. So in one year, it can all change. And these two lumps showed up. I don't know where the fuck they came from, but right. they're like buzzing from the lobby. Like, I'm we're coming. <laughs> it was so weird. I just 
uh, you know, that you have to do it consistently every yep. year. It's so unexpected. It's also unexpected. You read about it, and then it's happening to you, and that's it. Yeah, and I was uh, able to circumvent the chemo, which so many of my friends have gone through, and they yeah. were so sick, and the side effects were awful, and I just kind of skipped over that. So I feel so lucky. That's why I didn't feel sorry for myself, even though it was no picnic lot. with the drains yeah. and all that shit. I thought people go through this and then have chemo. So I'm so lucky. I bypassed it. Yeah, and I'm sure you really felt your community there. Oh, yeah. Like, My you're friends were such a good day. friend, and then suddenly you were the vulnerable one, and... Is it hard for you to to take in help or, or yes. to get attention? Yes. So that was another lesson you had to learn, like to say yes to people wanting to love you. I and like do attention for, you. for good stuff, yeah. like if I do a show or something, yeah. but I don't like attention for being weak or something. And I a lot of friends, sort of those secondary, tertiary level friends, mm-hmm. were like, I'm mad at you. You didn't tell me I would have helped you. And I said, that's why I didn't do it because I didn't want to scare my kids and have 20 flower arrangements there. So I only told Trip and my five best friends. Right. And that is it. Nobody. And my parents. But I did not like put out the word, you know, because I didn't want balloons hanging from the ceiling because it would freak my kids out like something's really wrong with her. That's right. Well, how do you think about success? What is what does it mean to you? Do you feel successful? And what is success to you? That's such a good question. I it's funny. I don't I don't feel successful right now cuz my show is canceled. Mm-hmm. So, and then the Munsters, I was so excited about that and then that didn't get picked up. So, I was like, "Oh, I guess I'm not successful anymore." But then I just stop and think like, "Look, this this health thing, that's really all that matters. Health is all that matters." And I'll do something when I'm ready. I've just I just feel like you have to focus on your personal life first cuz there are people who are so quote successful and then their Miz at home or whatever. Right. And I'm I'm happy just like holding up right now. I don't have a huge social life at the moment because I just, I don't really have that great a time at parties lately. I don't know why. I just feel like a, a lot of small talk that people do. I don't know. And my boobs were like the elephant in the room for a while. Yeah. I just, it's, and everyone was, and I wrote an essay about my mastectomy. So I went to this first party and people are inadvertently looking at my cans. Right. And Sadie, my daughter said, what do you expect? You wrote about having a double mastectomy. Of course, they're going to look at your cans. And I was like, I know, but it's weird. I feel right. like I have two Jasper Johns like bullseyes there. Well, so. it's one thing to put it on paper. <laughs> That's such a private event. To write something is such a private thing. And it's very hard to imagine it going out into the universe. It's yeah, just it's for weird. you. And you're putting these thoughts down. I know, but I have I have like a kind of Tourette's syndrome with writing. Like I just shit it out because it's better for me. Mm-hmm. I feel like better once I get it out there. It's an well, emotional zit that I, I have wanna to pop. I want to say that I appreciate that you do it for you, but the amount of pleasure and laughter and uh, uh, entertainment and thought-provoking material that you have written, acted in, whether it wherever you've written it and however you've put it out there has been I cannot tell you how much joy you have given me. Oh, and thank you. We you're, need, I'm going to cry. Don't so cry. Nice. It's just so true. And you, um, you're just such a special, uniquely gifted human. And every single person, I said at the beginning, you know, when I when I tweeted out or or talked to people about how thrilled I was to have you on this show, the the ripple effect you have of of making people feel good about what they do. Like every actor on your show, they went in really intimidated. Like there you are playing yourself. It's not like the right, you're there and you know it backwards and forwards. And it was intimidating. And the way you put everyone at ease immediately and 
made them feel talented. Television but they are moves talented. very fast. No, they're so good. Like all those guys you mentioned, Christopher and Mike, and I just felt, it's funny, I felt the opposite. I felt like they're the real professional actors who have spent 20 years honing their skills, and I'm just like, hi, I'm playing pretend now. Right. Um, so right. I, it was the opposite. I bowed down to them. Well, they felt welcome and loved, and uh, that's all we can hope for, to work and walk into a creative experience and feel appreciated. Whatever happens after you do it, that's up to the universe. It gets canceled or it gets reordered or whatever. I, I appreciated everybody. And what's weird is that I would like hug every boom operator and know their name. And they said, I've never worked on a show where the the person, you know, is it knows my name. And I said, what are you talking about? And then I was saying into the hair department, I said, what's the name of that cute guy who's, uh, you know, always with the props or whatever? And they're like, I don't know. And I said, don't you guys know the names? Because I thought you all Your worked co-workers. together on Broad City. And they said, yeah, I don't know. So I went to Tony Hernandez, our producer, and said, we're making a Facebook with a, a little book mm-hmm. with everybody's picture, yes. selfie. And he's like, why? And I said, because th- we will make a better show if these 110 people know each other and yeah. we know each other's names. And instead feel like of a saying, family. hey, we're standing next to them and getting the M&Ms at Craft Services. Exactly. So I made them do that. And they got an intern to just do it. And everyone said, why is this not on every set? It's ridiculous. It's true. So, you know, and I, I know some sets are 500 people. They probably need it even more. But um, I was proud of that more than anything else. I was, I was like, this is just something that has to happen. And I do think it became a family. I think it's everything. I think community is everything. And the idea that one job is more important than the other or like this person eats first and that, like, I hate all of that. I hate that. And I know, I know that you led your set with that. And to be number one on the call sheet is a very big responsibility. You set the tone. We talk a lot about that on the show. And you did it with such grace and generosity, and I cannot wait to see what you do next. I'm so Thank glad you, you are in good Thank health. Thank you. I'm so touched. Thank it you for having me. You're so nice. Of course. Anyway, thank you, Jill Carmen. Until you. next time. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.